real good. And uh, just be, just so you know, they uh, asked me, Pastor, you think it'd be all right if we, we sung Nina Simone? I had to say, now, which one y'all gonna sing? <laughs> but if you understand jazz, you know it has deep relations with gospel. And so it's certainly not out of place to sing such a soul-moving title in which we've had the privilege of enjoying this morning. I certainly want to thank Brother Jaziel for giving us such a wonderful poetic expression. Good words. Good words, man. Good words. Good words. Um, thank you, Sister Angel, for your creativity as well. And your attire looks beautiful, by the way. It's fitting for you. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you, Brother Calvin Parsons, Jr., for doing a great job. Thank you, Sister Bradley, for reading scripture for us. Where's she at? Where's Faith? Thank you for reading scripture for us. I appreciate it. <laughs> of course, the highlight of the morning is Brother Simonton. You just can't help but but be excited about him. Isn't he a handsome little fellow, though? <laughs> Suit on is all, but I certainly thank him for doing that go wrong with uh, Brother Anderson and Sister uh, Sydney Rose. Thank you so much. When I look at um, Sydney and uh, Brother Calvin Parsons and a um, few others um, who were here, particularly the four young ladies who were singing except one, I'm sorry, the four dancers because our dancers gave us a wonderful expression. Um, utilizing the Sean Pace. But when I think of them, I think of the 20 years ago when I came here, they were all just children. And 20 years later, who would have ever imagined that they would be standing in front of the church and providing for us wisdom across those 20 years. What a wonderful privilege that is. Of course, we're always thankful each and every year. I want to say since I've been here, we've had the privilege of having the Burke United Methodist Church confirmation class come and be with us. Thank you so much for being with us today. I would have thought by now we may have scared them away, but they keep coming back every year. So I say, I guess it's not that bad. We appreciate you coming. We also appreciate the idea of you permitting diversity to be a part of your composition. We really do appreciate that. That's extremely important. What a different religious world we probably would have that we would understand how to embrace diversity and to appreciate how we may serve the same God with different expressions. Um, unfortunately, we certainly, we don't do that. But thank you again for being with us. There was a word for us. I won't keep you very long because I know next door they're waiting for the those of you who may want to come over and watch Harriet. So I won't keep you no more than about an hour or so and then we'll be ready to go. <laughs> there was a word from the book of Judges, chapter 16. The book of Judges, chapter 16. 
If y'all say amen, I promise I cut it down to uh, 59 minutes instead of 60. Y'all give me that many amens, I might have to cut it down lower than that. Uh, special also thanks to the male chorus who gave us wonderful rendering before the sermonic expression. Thank you for that. that but Percy, if don't nobody else stand up and support you, your wife is giving you the high five. <laughs> yes, sir. I ain't mad at you, Sister Owen. and you give your man his props. You hear me? <laughs> Judges chapter 16. Let me read verses 4 through 6. And I hope I remembered everybody on this program. If not, please forgive me, but Thank all of you for just doing such a wonderful job. This was a wonderful Black History program. This, amen. Thank you so much. Judges chapter 16, beginning at verse 4. Reading from the New Living Translation, Word of the Lord. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the valley of Zorid. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, Entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up secretly. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me what makes you so strong. And what would it take to tie you up securely? Amen. You may be seated. Amen. The lords of the Philistines <clears throat> came to Delilah and said, Entice Samson. Do whatever you have to do. With this objective, find out what makes him so strong. And when you find that out, <clears throat> then we can securely tie him up, and as one translation says, and bind him so that he will no longer be able to be as strong as he once was. <clears throat> On last week, we were dealing with the principle of interval, and the focus was on the Gospel of John chapter 5 and those first 17 verses where we wrestled with the issue of time, understanding that in the meantime, there is an expectation that God requires for us to persevere and to be patient and to endure, to push forward, to stay prayerful, stay connected in the word, exercise faith, trust in the promises of God, and God in time and on time will do what God needs to do. The push of that text obviously centers around the man who had been at that pool for 38 years. And for 38 years, without question, he had to 
at least understood the principle of time in terms of patience. For each and every day, each and every week, each and every month, each and every year, he repeatedly kept coming back to that pool with an anticipation that something would happen if he could just get into the pool. His life changed once Jesus appeared, but the essence of the story raises the question to us, how much patience do we have in waiting on God to do what God does? This morning, we're introduced to a character who probably does not exercise much patience. He may not understand time in the manner in which we contend that time should be understood with endurance and patience, perseverance. In fact, Samson may very well be more of the natural man to which we are more accustomed to knowing about and familiar with than the spiritual person to which we often try to decipher out of the life of Samson. He's an interesting character. He's a man that seems to be driven by his nature. He seems to be one who doesn't possess much control of his passions. He's an interesting character in that it obviously is apparent that he's attractive, a bit of charisma, someone who might hold a significant amount of influence. He's serving as the 12th judge of Israel. He has an assignment and his assignment is to lead them back to a space of obedience and commitment to God. He's a character though who's given an assignment that one might argue is quite overwhelming. In fact, he is to lead Israel who is struggling with their moral compass and their spirituality. They have periodically in the past exchanged their commitment for God for what the text may describe as the worship of strange gods and idols. They have somehow exercised negligence in remembering that the God of their salvation is the God who has been committed unto them. In fact, when you read Judges chapter two, you get a chance to see what kind of people Samson is asked to lead. A strange group. In fact, the assignment may be argued too overwhelming, too difficult one to be able to grasp. In fact, the text says in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that after the generation died, remember, we have an entire generation who dies in the wilderness for their very neglect of trusting the very God who brought them out of Egypt to the wilderness. But they decided not to believe in that miraculous to which they have already witnessed. Isn't it something? how we can even deny God after witnessing the hand of God. And their consequence 
is death and they die and yet the text says there's another generation who like strange because this barring Joshua and Caleb is the generation who who comes into Canaan who witnesses the distribution of the territories who sees the miraculous hand of God has seen it in dealing with the battle of Jericho and Ai and yet now they too have decided that God is not worthy of their commitment and so they turn their backs on God in the language of Moses they become stiff necked and this is the people that the 12th judge of Israel Samson is asked to lead and the text says that they forgot to remember the mighty things that God had done for Israel and the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, gave them over to the vices of their enemy. And this is the people to whom Samson is asked to lead. And yet, in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2 of Judges, even in the moment of anger in which God gives them over, yet God still provides a medium of salvation. Verse 16 says he still manages to open the door for them to walk out of their defiant position even when they have put themselves in the presence of God and told God in their actions we will not serve you yet God's love runs so deep that he doesn't leave them where they left him. The text says in verse 16 of chapter 2 that the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. And here's the sadness, yet Israel did not listen. Well, lest we are tempted to point our fingers, how many times has the Lord avenue of salvation for us out of the condition to which We've allowed ourselves to walk in. And even after the open door has been presented to us, we still decided to go in the opposite direction. It is to that to which Samson is called to lead. And the text says that how quickly they have turned away from the path of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's command. I like this text because it sort of reminds us if you grew up in the deep south and you know you probably went to church somewhere. It doesn't matter if it was Baptist or Methodist or AME or Assemblies of God or Church of God. They drug you to church somewhere on Sunday morning. But in bringing you to church, they were instilling in you that which they believe would not only survive the endurance of time, but it would be persuasive to you so that even when we became adults and decided that we were not going to go to church at least not every Sunday anymore because we were tired of church, 
We were reminded though that when the winds of adversity arose and when tragic struck us and when the pressure of life and the body begins to play its own tune and it begins to walk down the street of demise, isn't it amazing how we remembered, well, if I can't go nowhere else, I know I need to go back to the place, to the old landmark to the place where God would speak to me in a very powerful way. And it's in that upbringing that we certainly can't avoid that Samson does not find his own roots. Samson is an interesting character. He's a promised child in the sense, I should better say miracle child. He's a miracle child in the sense that his mother and father could not have children and all of a sudden an angel shows up and lets them know that by this time next year, you, you'll have a son. And his mother is so amazed at this thing that she goes and tells her husband. <clears throat> and when her husband <clears throat> wants to know who told you, she says, I didn't get his name. <laughs> In fact, I was just so amazed at the story. I didn't even ask who he was or where he was from. I just was rejoicing over the news. So Samson is a miraculous child, but the angel made this further distinction that they need to understand. You're going to have a son, but this son is to be dedicated to God. He's going to fall under what Leviticus 6 calls the Nazarite vow. And in doing that, God says there's three things that he certainly cannot do under this vow. First of all, as you are carrying this child in his prenatal days, you cannot have any strong drink. I want you to take care of yourself because in you there's a seed, there's a judge, a future judge who will bring deliverance to Israel if they're willing to listen. But as a Nazarite, he cannot himself have strong drink. Can't take a nip every now and then. Nope, nope. Got to find something else to do. Secondly, he is not to come in contact with any dead carcasses. Anything that is not alive, I don't want him to come in contact with it because it disturbs the presence of purity. But finally, he's to never cut his hair until told. And those are the three Nazarite vows that he's under as a child. And Samson grows up to be a very strong, mighty man. And he's an interesting character in that he reminds us of who we are. He's a man who's favored, read the book of Judges, particularly beginning in chapter 13 all the way to 16. He's a favored man. You can tell God is working in his life. He's favored but he's flawed he got the presence of God in his life and God is graciously watching over him but he's a man full of flaws his emotions are not quite under control and his proclivity for his appetite in terms of his body's sensuality he seems to struggle in that area he reminds us of us that we may be favored by God, but, but we still got some flaws. 
He also reminds us that no matter who one's leader is, as much as you would like to think that that leader is 100% pure, may be favored, but that leader still has flaws. He's also anointed. It is clear that he's anointed because the angel tells his mom and dad that he's going to be anointed, but in his anointing, he's also afflicted. He's afflicted because Samson is quite narcissistic in many ways. He cares only about himself, gratifying himself, and as a result, it eventually becomes the affliction, affliction that leads to his demise. Isn't it something that how you and I, we could be very well favored and yet flawed. We can be anointed by the power of God to do great things, but behind the scenes, we've got some affliction. I think it's interesting how now they're beginning to recognize, particularly in the Southern Baptist Convention, that they're discovering that 60 to 70 percent of their pastors seem to be engaged in viewing pornography. But they're shocked. And when I read this, I'm asking, why are you so shocked? The same voice that's anointed on Sunday to preach the word of God is the same statue that's afflicted on Monday. Because it's a human being. He's blessed. Samson is blessed. He gets into a battle with his nemesis, his enemy, the Philistines. He gets so angry that he takes 300 foxtails and ties them together and ruins the grain field of the Philistines. Who else can, who else can tie 300 foxtails together? I mean, I got a dog and I can't get to one. He does, he takes the jawbone of a donkey and fights a battle. This, this boy is bad. He's blessed with such power, but he's also burdened because he doesn't know how to utilize and harness the power. Then Samson has an enemy who's both public and private, the Philistine. The Philistines become Samson's enemy because they despise the Israelites. They despise them because if you go back to Exodus chapter 3, I believe it is, maybe chapter 13, the threes have got me kind of mixed up this morning. But anyway, um, the Philistines has decided to take a stand because... Joshua and the rest of the Israelites are promised the territory of Canaan that the Philistines are occupying. And the Philistines says, no, you, you're not coming up in here taking our land. We, we got this. This is us. And they said it doesn't matter how we have to fight. We will fight. And they fought repeatedly with Israel. In fact, they were probably the biggest thorn in Israel's side throughout the Old Testament and not until they are demised by the Assyrians because they pose the constant fight and threat to the Israelites' existence. They just were determined that even though God said it, you're not taking our land. We're going to fight you until we can fight no more. But that says something to us, tenacity, and strength but conviction 
Conviction to the point where it raises the question, how far are you willing to go and how much are you willing to fight for that which you believe in? If, if I connect that with the words of Martin King, if a man hasn't found something worth dying for, he's not fit to live, there's some value in the tenacity of their biggest arch enemy. There's some value in their stand to fight for what they believe in. And yet the Israelites were not much fighters because they were not a people who understood how to fight. They were an agricultural people who were simply built to depend on a hand that was far more powerful than their hands. And Samson demonstrated in a very interesting example how powerful those hands could be. They knew that Samson didn't operate in the natural, the Philistines. When you really begin to read chapter 14, 15, and 16, something happens. Samson, the text says, goes down to Gaza. And once again, because of his desires, he enters a night with a woman who's not his wife. Y'all read between the lines on that one. But then he leaves and goes to the valley of Zorik and he finds this woman. I shouldn't say fine. He, he manages to introduce himself. And her name is Delilah. Now, while he's in Gaza, they recognize that Samson is in their territory and they attempt, because the God, those who are in Gaza is a part of Philistine territory, they attempt to get a hold of Samson and get rid of him. In fact, the text says that they said, we'll wait until tomorrow morning and we'll catch him as he first rise and then we'll, we'll get a hold of him and subdue him and that'll be the end of him. But the Bible says that Samson got up about midnight. They should have known they couldn't outfox that joker because he was shocked. Got up about midnight and picked up the gate post and the gate. Went up to the top of the hill just short of Hebron and set it down. That was enough right then to let them know you're not dealing with an ordinary man. But someone who is operating in a supernatural gesture and the Bible says he meets Delilah, but when he meets Delilah, somehow the lords of the Philistines, perhaps they may have saw Delilah and Samson having dinner one night at the supper club. I don't know. Maybe they were at one of the resorts in the Valley of Zurich. But someone alerted the lords, now the word lords there in the text may be equivalent to what we might call governors or mayors in our modern term. They were the leadership over various geographical circles and they all got together and they approached Delilah and says, check this out, this is what we want you to do. Samson has got unbelievable power. Even
even though we are an advanced industrial people by way of weaponry, we absolutely cannot match the power that this guy has. Here's what we want you to do. You do whatever you have to do to entice him, to trap him. We don't care. All we want you to do is to find out what makes him so strong. He's got a kryptonite and we want to know what it is. When I read that, began to quake that text to what actually happens in life, I began to recognize that whether one believes in a devil or whether one believes in the interference and the application of evil, here's what you have to conclude. There is always an attempt by the opposite of good to find out what your strength and what your weakness might be. But there's something you may not be aware of. It can never know unless you give it your cooperation. Unless you unveil and reveal what your weakness or your strength is, it cannot know. Why do I believe that? Well, if that, whether it's the devil or some other power, if it has that kind of power, I would have to equate it to the omniscience of God who has all knowledge. And then if it's equated to God, then I got a problem with who should I be serving then? But I can't equate that to God because I know there's only one who has all knowledge. And so there's an attempt to find out where my weakness is. How do I know that? When I read Matthew 4, I get a sense that the enemy is trying to find out where is the weakness in the life of Jesus. So he presents various different forms of temptation. And each time Jesus unveils what his strength is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And maybe Samson, in an indirect way, is trying to tell us, don't share what your weaknesses are. In fact, you might want to share what your strengths are, but you really don't have to share that because when you exercise what your strength is, it will be observed by everybody who's watching, trust me. Because when they saw Samson pick up those gateposts and march up to the top of that hill, they knew without question there is something supernatural in this man's life that we've got to find out. And an arch weaponry that evil uses, look at chapter 16 and verse 16, is nagging. Psychological warfare. The Bible says that uh, in chapter 16 and verse 16 that Delilah did something that often I'm sure we experience in our wrestling with the enemy in this text it says she tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it Now, all you brothers, don't you, don't you jump on that train. You got to go home after church, so you... Don't you mess around and be sleeping on the other side. You, listen to me. Don't tell us she's a nag. No, but the point of the text is the principle. 
Satan nags and nags. And when you look into the life episode of Samson, four times he's nagged by Delilah. And she asked him, what is it that makes you so strong? And he gives three different responses. And not until her nagging finally breaks him down that he actually tells her where his strength lies. He unveils the very secret that God told him never to unveil. When he tells her about the seven locks on his head and the twisting together and he is actually going back to Leviticus 6 because in the text he's actually breaking all three of the Nazarite's vows and it's reminding us that when you take a vow unto God work hard as you can to stay faithful to that vow because the consequence could be quite devastating and for Samson it was overwhelming. But Samson leads me to understand that even though I know I am tested and folk are trying to find out where my strength lies, converse with Samson face to face. For him, it was in the covenant made in the twisting of the locks of his hair. But in your outline in the bulletin, I gave you four reasons why I believe I would have to respond differently, what I would have to say. If someone raised the question, what makes you so strong, I believe Samson would agree with me and begin to cry out and say, the first thing that makes me strong is my religion. If you look at chapter 14 uh, and beginning at verse 5, here's what it tells us. It tells us that Samson would say that I've got to refer back to my religion, not only because that's how my mother and my father raised me, that's the foundation that they put in my life, and as a result of that, I've seen the reality of how God works, but every time I got into trouble, every time there was a battle in my life, every time there was an enemy to be defeated, it was my religion, my relationship with God that brought me through. I know you don't believe me, so take your Bible. Turn to Judges chapter 14 and listen to verse 5. Verse 5 says, As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. And at that moment, here it is, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. You got to translate that and look at yourself and say, you know, every time that my back has been against the wall and I certainly thought that I might be knocked out this time and just when I lift my eyes unto the hills from whence comes my help, the spirit of the Lord came upon me. And look at what the text says. When it came upon him, he was able to rip the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands and he did it easily as if it were a young goat. So folk are trying to figure out how in the world did you just get out of that sickness? How did you just get out of that trauma? How did you just get out of that bad relationship? How in the world did you come out and you look nothing like you just came through? That's because my relationship and my religion with God 
gives me victory every single time. I know that ain't enough for, look at verse 14. Verse 14 says unto us the same thing. In chapter 15, verse 14, here's what it says. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumphant. They thought they had beat Samson. Now, on occasion, they had a little run-in with Samson. They thought this time that they had actually got Samson cornered. They thought this time they'd actually going to be able to shout a victory. But listen to what the text says. Judges chapter 15 and verse 14. The Philistines came shouting in triumph. But there it is again. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. And they had him tied up. But he snapped the ropes on his arms and they were burned strands of flax and they fell from his wrists. Then he found a jawbone, recently killed donkey, picked it up and killed a thousand Philistines. Take a lot of faith to believe that. But maybe Samson's trying to tell us when you know God, what seems to be impossible with man is possible with God. Look at verse 18, chapter 15. Samson was now thirsty, cried out to the Lord, you have accomplished hands, you have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the pagan? So God caused a great gush of water out of the hollow of the ground and Samson was revived. In other words, here's what he's saying. He said, I'm trying to tell you, even when I wasn't necessarily in a battle, but when I needed strength, God came through and gave it to me. So Samson would say, what makes me so strong is my religion. And maybe there's somebody else in here this morning who can testify. My faith in God makes me strong. But then there's a second thing. Not just my religion, but my relationship. Now here's what's interesting. Samson comes from the tribe of Dan. Dan is a tribe known for family relations. It's tight. It's a tight-knitted community. Here's the strange thing. Samson knows that he's learned about God from his parents and yet, from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 16 is his conclusion, you never hear Samson conversing with his family. You never hear Samson conversing with anybody. Samson is a long ranger. In other words, Samson knows that relationships to family is critical, but in his crisis, the text doesn't tell us whether he calls his mother or his father, whether he has his best friend to help him out, nothing. He's trying to fight life's battles all by himself. In other words, Samson is saying, if I had it to do all over again, I got to tell you, family relations is important. 
I need to know for sure that my strength is connected to the strength of my mother and my father, to my auntie and my uncle, to my someone who oversaw me, to my brother and my sister. When we get in a crisis, the very worst mistake we can make is to vacate church. To disconnect ourselves from fellow brothers and sisters who are there to give us strength and encouragement. If you understand anything about the New Testament, when Paul writes to us in his letters, over 100 times he referenced this phrase, one another. There's a reason for that. We ought to pray for one another and love one another and support one another and encourage one another and you need that because in that relationship it will build strength in your life and maybe one reason why we struggle with this thing by ourselves is because we have yet to resolve whatever ought that is whatever issue that is with fellow family members and so we'd rather fight about ourselves and die than to connect with our family members who can gather around us, give us a word of hope, a word of encouragement, who can pat us on the back, who can squeeze our hand. Isn't it a tragedy to have to go in surgery and no family member there to support you? Isn't it a tragedy to suffer death and no family member there to console you? Samson says to us, and I say to you, that your strength also lies not just in your religion, but in your relationship with family and friends as well. A good friend, a good friend, you can never place, uh, place a price value on a good friend. A good friend is almost like a blood sibling. They'll tell you the truth and whether you like it or not and you may not speak to them for the next month but when you finally call on day 31 they're right there waiting because that relationship is so valuable that whenever the winds of adversity occur we go back to that person to let them know I need your strength. I need you, you need me. We're all a part of God's army. So Samson says, what makes you so strong is your religion. What makes you so strong is your relationships. But what also makes you so strong is your reality. If you read verses 18 through 21 in chapter 16, here's a reality. Samson divulges his strength. Delilah follows through. This time when they bind Samson, he cannot break free. And there is no more tragic verse in Samson's life than what we read in verse 20 of chapter 16. It says, she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, now that's another sermon right there, sleeping in the wrong woman's lap. That's, that's a whole nother sermon. But he was sleeping in the wrong spot. 
When he woke up, he thought, here it is, here it is, the worst of his life, I will do as before and shake myself free. Here it is. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. That's a reality. Samson could not, he could not avoid it. He could have spiritualized it all he wanted to. But the reality was God had taken his hand away. And the once blessed man was now overwhelmingly burdened. And the once anointed man is going to feel his affliction. And the once favored man is going to see the reality of his flaw. For the Bible says that when the Philistines captured him, verse 22, they dehumanized him, demoralized him, whatever you want to call it. They put him down to grind grain like an animal. And they gouged his eyes out. So not only has Samson been reduced from the status of being the man who seemed to fulfill all of his desires, He broke his vow to God. And now he's got a consequence. He's grinding. He's grinding like a slave. He's been reduced to being blind. He's dehumanized. And no matter how hard he tried to spiritualize that, he can't see. And he's walking, says the text, like an ox. And I'm here to tell you that one thing that keeps me anchored in my strength is my reality. I've come to realize that you, you don't want to actually try to cross over and play in Satan's territory. You'll never win over there. Can't beat him on his own ground. Too smart. Too strong. You got to stay over in the family of God. I'm, I'm reminded of when Moses comes from Sinai, comes down and he hears party noise at the foot of the mountain. In fact, the noise has disturbed him so that he breaks at that moment conversing with God and has got to go down. In fact, God says, you need to go down and handle your people. And Moses comes down and sees what's going on and they have built a golden calf. And Moses says, what, what is, what is y'all doing? What's going on here? And Aaron said, hey man, they just told me, you know, they wanted to make a cat. It took you too long up there with God and they just wanted to make another God. And then Moses says, he takes the two tablets that he's getting from God and he throws them to the ground and he splits the earth and then Moses says, who on the Lord's side? Come on over here if you are. And read the text closely in Exodus around 30, 33, 30, I think it's 30, 31, 32, 33. Only the Levites. And here's a strange thing. The Levites, read the history, Levites were thugs. The Levites were the thugs of the 12 tribes. They were rough guys. 
They killed everybody who didn't want to come over to the Lord's side. And God made them priest. Because the reality was, you've got to make choices when you are confronted with evil. And life is about choices and consequences. But what makes me so strong is when I face my reality, God shows me in the word how to survive in reality. Can't spiritualize everything. That's the interesting thing about the text. You can't spiritualize everything. I'm amazed at people who, who go to the doctor, get a diagnosis that they have cancer or something that's devastating, come back and say, I ain't got it. In the name of Jesus, I don't have it. Wait a minute, hold on now. Are you really facing reality? I broke my finger. You know, it's... I didn't break it in the name of Jesus. That thing is just as straight as it can be. No, it's broke. <laughs> Go to the doctor, get a spleen, whatever they do to reset the thing and get it fixed. Stop spiritualizing what's a reality. How do I know that? Well, you read the book of James. James says somebody come to your church and they are hungry. You don't start telling them about the Lord first. You find them something to eat. It's the reality of things. Face that. And Samson, he had to. Grinding that meal, he had to face his reality. But you know, the final thing that actually gave him strength was his resurrections. Now, the greatest verse in the entire 16th chapter of Samson's story is verse 22. But before long, his hair began to grow again. <laughs> Remember now, when they cut his hair, all of his strength, it's gone. But his hair began to grow again. I've been knocked down by life. I mean, I've been knocked down by unemployment. I've been knocked down by sickness. I've been knocked down by divorce. I've been knocked down by death. But my hair is starting to grow again. I've been disappointed by life. I've been disappointed by some decisions. In fact, some of my consequences have been overwhelming. But my hair is starting to grow again. It's a signal that although I may look like death, I'm about to rise to the newness of life. I'm about to come alive one more time. You're about to see me. I know you thought I was out down for the count, but keep looking, keep looking. There's a flicker of hope coming up, and I'm about to stand up to the newness of life. How do you know that, Reverend? Look at the text closely. Samson knew his reality, and his reality was he was blind and grinding, but his hair was starting to grow back. And verse 28 says that Samson understood that he had one more shot. And the Bible says that Samson did the one thing that if you haven't done it, 
If you're not doing it, you better start doing it and never forget to do it. It says, then Samson prayed. There should have been an overwhelming shout right there. Because if you know anything about God, you'll know that prayer will give you strength when you've never had strength, no matter how depleted your life is, no matter how dark the moment is, no matter how difficult the bridge is, no matter how troubling the storm is, prayer will give you some power, will give you some hope, will give you some inspiration, will give you a peace of mind, will give you some strength, will pull you out of a dark space. Prayer, Father, I stretch my hands unto thee prayer will do it every single time it, it said that Samson prayed to the Lord and then he said Lord remember me again there should have been shouting right there because when I thought about that I said Lord how many times have I been back to God and say Lord it's me one more time it's me again fail it's me again didn't do the right thing it's me one more time same thing it's me again God remember me one more time bring me back from a death state and look what Samson does. He says, Lord, remember me. And here's the tragic of Samson's story, really. He says, Lord, give me one more chance to show my enemy, even if I have to die with him. In which he does. And his prayer is, Lord, let me, let me rise one more time. And he tells the young man who is escorting him, would you take me to the post and chain me up close to the post so I can grab a hold of them and when I grab a hold of them in the right time he pushes out but he prays for God to give him strength to demise those who have made his life miserable but he does it at the expense of his own life says the text he died as a result but he says Lord please strengthen me just one more time and then in verse 30 he prays Lord let me die with the Philistines and the text says the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and the people so he killed more people when he died than when he was living his entire life now here is something strange Remember I made mention of the relationship? How do I know that Samson probably didn't have any relationship with his family in that tough time? When they go to bury him. Look at the last verse of chapter 16. It says, later his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. Then they took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Estuol where his father Manoah was buried. That says to me, is it possible that Samson hadn't spoken to his mother or father in years? Is that a reason why 
Some of his strength began to demise, not just in the cutting of hair, but because he lacked relations with important people, his family. But on this concluding Sunday in which we're talking black history, your strength lies in your religion. And whether you want to admit it or not, your strength lies in your relationship with your history by way of your family. Your strength lies in facing reality. Don't put your head in the sand. Face what's actually before you. And yet your strength also resides in you being able to become resurrected to the newness of life even when you are in a dying state. And is it possible that somebody is in this house this morning and you're in that state where you're dying? And you need life. And I'm here to tell you, that prayer fits you, Lord. Remember me. Because all of us in this room have had that kind of prayer time. Lord, remember me. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to a man who's hanging on the cross of Jesus and looks at him and says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. This day you will be with me in paradise. Lord, let the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, be acceptable in your sight. For you are indeed our strength and our redeemer. Salvation is of the utmost this morning, Lord somebody in this place that needs to know your son Jesus in a very personal way, let this be the day we pray for them to begin a new, a new life in you. Somebody might be further here, Lord, who is struggling, perhaps resembling Samson's journey. They know that they have deep roots in their religious tradition. They know that they get strength from the words of encouragement of their family relations from time to time and they're in a space of reality that they just cannot deny. They need strength right now, God. So as Samson prayed, would you give them one more chance that they may be resurrected to the newness of life? We ask it in your son Jesus' name. All over the building as we stand, we extend this invitation to life. There's somebody in this room today we want to encourage you to make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ today, whether you come by letter, by Christian experience or baptism, we have open arms to say we want to be your church family on this Lord's day. We extend this invitation because we want you to experience the life of joy that we've had the privilege of being able to walk in as we walk with Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, we pray, lead you.